1: welcome to the show ridiculous historians thank you so much for tuning in I have a question to start off today's show it's uh it's for my uh, my esteemed uh, co-host or super producer oh uh, my name's Ben uh, Noel do you did you ever play sports as a kid? uh
0: yeah I was uh not very good at it I was in the outfield uh, in baseball and I think I played soccer for like, a couple of months or something like that. Mm-hmm. I was I was a very sluggish child,
1: hmm. and have grown into a very sluggish adult. Don't be too hard on yourself. Uh, what about our super producer Casey Pegram? <laughs> Casey, uh, did you play any sports as a, as a as a wee tyke?
3: I was a uh, perpetual left fielder mm-hmm. in baseball. Uh, if anything was hit in my direction, I was not catching it. Right. And if I was at bat, the only way I was getting on base was if I got walked. Right. But once I was on base, I was pretty good at running. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, other than that, no. It's
1: totally. just getting on the base.
3: Yeah, that's the thing. That was the, that was the <laughs> rub.
1: And maybe that's why uh, in this country it's so popular – to refer to stages of intimacy as different bases on a field that's ah. right yeah i'm still confused i think everybody has a different opinion about uh what third base is uh, or as we said when i was growing up what shortstop you know i was always interested in that well but then you know
0: some people refer to the act of uh, lovemaking as scoring right. True. Right. right right at least beavis and Head did
3: Conceptions sometimes can be getting one past the goalie. That's right. <laughs> so that's there's true. all kinds of sports metaphors,
0: <laughs> or uh, sliding into home. <laughs> uh,
1: right, right. And we always, we always think of baseball as the national pastime in the U.S., and that's why there are so many metaphors, uh, or or figures of speech, and idioms that refer to. The sport of baseball, but this wasn't always the case. In today's episode, we're looking at another strange craze. It did it was not as long-lived as baseball, but in its heyday, it was as popular. And that, my friends, is the sport known as competitive walking. Sounds like the laziest sport ever
0: of all time. The dullest as well.
1: It sounds like a Tim and Eric sketch. Right. You know? It's like
0: professional paint watching. I was, you know? yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yep, right there with you. It, it's strange because it was also a spectator sport. <laughs> According to Matthew Algio in his book, Pedestrianism, in the decades after the Civil War, from the 1870s to the 1880s, millions of people were moving into the city and there wasn't much for them to do in their free time. So pedestrianism, competitive walking matches, became really popular. They were, they were a, uh, a social event for people to go to. They were a sport for people to watch. And when we first found out about this, it reminded me of uh, trying to do that not-quite-run, not-quite-walk that a lot of kids do in elementary school, like you're in a library And you're chasing someone or you're running down the hall and a teacher shows up. So you still kind of you're skittering, but you're you're trying not to move your body as though you're running. That's what a lot of this stuff looked like.
0: Atlas Obscura reported uh, in an article called The uh, Hot 19th Century Sport That Launched Modern Sports Betting. Pedestrianism actually got its start. In the English aristocracy, um, as we know, servants, or at least a particular flavor of servant, were known as footmen, and that was largely because their job was to carry things on foot. And, you know, as... The super rich are sometimes want to do. They turned it into a cruel game wherein they pitted footmen against each other for for their own amusement. Mm-hmm. And it became a, a hot betting
1: situation. Mm-hmm. And at that time, a lot of the emphasis for for this sport was going to be on the endurance of the participants. And it was always, as you said, I'm glad you raised this point, it was always sort of this rich person's game. They would consider themselves sportsmen, but they were really just sending their servants in as their proxies and betting on them. When we go to the U.S., what we see is... a. Three things had changed post-Civil War. Uh, The nation was industrializing. People had more spare time than they did in agrarian economies. They also had a little more disposable income. And infrastructure. And infrastructure, exactly. And the country overall had recovered from or fallen from this stern work ethic this antebellum work ethic and now people said you know it's okay to unwind i want to have a little fun i got to spare a spare couple of sawbucks or whatever so let's uh let's let's go watch the competitive walk and it had some advantages over other sports first it needed no special equipment The people were the equipment. And second, it didn't really cost much to set it up. You didn't have to make a a purpose built field or anything like that. And wouldn't you know it, by the 1870s, the nation was awash in what uh, the Chicago Tribune called walking fever. And even even newspapers that covered it were a little bit confused by it, right? This reminds me of, like, a Mr. Show sketch
0: or something. It's like, <laughs> coupon the movie, you know? It's like, America's got walking fever. You know, it's like the dullest-sounding type of fever that America could ever possibly catch.
1: Mm-hmm. And the, the reason I say the word confused is because papers of the note would, would say stuff like, Well, let's take the Chicago Tribune example, uh, which we found via Mental Floss. The Chicago Tribune said, walking is at best not an absorbably entrancing sport. But according to Mental Floss, the Tribune was neglecting a very specific fact. People have more free time, which meant that a large segment of the population – was bored people were desperate for entertainment not everybody had easily accessible uh droves of knowledge uh the way that we have with cell phones
0: right and even like catching a play or, or like a concert or something outside of you know a home situation would have been available but too expensive to to do like on the regular you know it'd be a special occasion for sure
1: mm-hmm, absolutely yeah so a, th- a ticket to a theatrical show, to a play in Chicago at the time, would cost you $1. And that was about twice the price of a ticket to a week long world class walking match. They
0: really were bored, weren't they?
1: These people were walking in circles, by the way, in this particular match. Of course they were. The Mental Floss article that just mentioned, also written by Matthew Algio, the author of Pedestrianism, has the headline, the insane six-day, 500-mile race that riveted America. That's right. Six days, 500 miles. They were walking in a circle. It reminds me of uh, questions people have asked me about racing before when, when they say, you know, why do people watch things like NASCAR. Right. Uh, at least
0: with NASCAR, they're going quite fast. Mm-hmm. It's a little more, there's, there's a lot of potential for fiery crashes. There, the stakes are a lot higher.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of why people watch it.
0: I do appreciate Algio's characterization. He's, he is giving this much more credit than I think it deserves uh, and, and really tries to really sex up this whole walking idea. He's describing the countdown that would have led to the beginning of this race. One, two, on three, they were off with hips swiveling and arms pumping. The great walking match for the championship of the world had begun. Mm-hmm. Hips swiveling and arms pumping. So, this uh, implies that they're power walking then.
1: Right. And power walking or race walking, as it's called uh, officially, is. In Olympic sport today, uh, and it's more than worth watching a couple of clips on YouTube if if you'd like a chuckle. Now, I'm not saying these people are serious athletes. I'm saying that when you're outside of the world of their world, that type of walking looks odd. So we know that in this endurance match, this 600 miles in six days, uh, we know thanks to Algio's research a little bit about the day to day of the race. The racers were on the track continuously. They'd have these cots set up inside the track, and they could nap maybe three hours a day. But other than that, for about 21 hours a day, they were power walking around this track. And the rules were simple. They would just map out a dirt track on the floor of an arena. A lot of these matches took place at the first Madison Square Garden in New York. And the lap was about a seventh or an eighth of a mile. You could only walk—the only reason, by the way, that this was six days was because, at the time, public amusements were banned on Sundays. Otherwise, it probably would have went longer, seven days at least. So they started right after midnight, 12.01, Sunday night, Monday morning. And that's when they had that countdown that you were talking about, Noel. And then they just kept walking until midnight the next Saturday. Wait, what about pee breaks? They took pee breaks, and you know, like I just said, they had the cots where they slept for three hours a day.
0: But 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 what, 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 did they have like uh, porta porta potties, rudimentary, like uh, outhouses? They
1: had to, yeah. They weren't horses; they didn't just go while they were walking. You didn't
0: think they maybe wore special, you know, absorbent pants or something? I don't know.
1: I don't believe so. I don't believe so. Uh, there is there there is one thing: uh, the pedestrians; and those were the participants in these. Uh, did drink a lot, not necessarily a lot of water. They drank a lot of champagne during the race. What? It that seems dangerous. It was considered a stimulant.
2: Really?
1: And their trainers told them to drink champagne because they were under the impression for some reason that this would give them an advantage. The problem was that a lot of these dudes would just slug it by the bottle. Seriously. So that's not a stimulant. That's
0: the opposite. No, and wouldn't it get you kind of dehydrated if you were just drinking
1: lots of alcohol and sweating and not drinking water? Right, right. I guess it depends on how fast you're walking. And what time of year would this have been? Uh, November. Right. So, a little chilly. Yeah. Yeah, it's getting there, especially if we're talking northeast, right? And New York in November, it's not exactly sweltering.
2: Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile.
0: See Mint Mobile for details.
1: Also, I, w- I want to say that this was a big social event. People weren't just in silence holding their, you know, their betting tokens. There were brass bands that were playing songs. There were people selling snacks that were popular at the time, like roasted chestnuts and pickled eggs. I think the latter is gross, but that's just me. You ever had a roasted chestnut? I have, yeah, yeah, I've made roasted
0: chestnuts. I've never had one, but they uh, they always make them uh, in New York around the holidays mm-hmm. on the little, you know, the street carts, the food yeah, yeah, carts, yeah. and they really smell good.
1: They're, they're great. Mm-hmm. I would say also uh, you should be able to get some year-round at H-Mart, or at least chestnuts. Okay. Uh, so, How do
0: you roast them? you just put them, in, like, on a sheet pan and, like, put them in the oven with uh, a little olive I'll oil? You, or? I'll send you the thing. Please do. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, so— this was also a seen-and-be-seen seen kind of gathering. Oh, but there were a lot of big hats. hmm Future President Chester Arthur, not Chestnut Arthur, but Chester Arthur uh, was at this one. James Blaine, a senator from Maine, was a big fan of pedestrianism. James Blaine, a senator from Maine? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I love that. I'm leaning into the sketch comedy aspect of this. So sometimes people in the crowd would be there to see the famous spectators. As much as they were to actually be at the power walk. Yeah. So it's kind of like golf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very much so.
0: And a lot of standing around. Do you think, because they, they, were, they were going in a fixed track situation? Yep. Yep. So they would be in stands, I would imagine, mm-hmm. like bandstands where you would kind of see. I went, how long was a lap? Did it say? It's a seventh or an eighth of a mile. Okay. So it wouldn't take a whole heck of a long time for them to get back around. Nope. So you'd be, but it would take you a long time to track the progress of your, uh, your person.
1: They had people assigned, right, to watch each. person. I guess so.
0: I just wonder, like, with the whole sleeping cot situation, how would they keep track? Like, it would it be like, you know, like in terms of like who was ahead.
1: Yeah, they would keep a they would keep a clock, and they would add your total times. But also, because this started as a sport that was centered on gambling, mm. there were multiple ways for uh, for the gamblers, the true players here, to win. You could gamble on who was going to be the first person to drop out or who would be the first person to achieve a given number of miles. Got it, got it, so, got it, got it. So you could go any number of directions with this. There were so many ways you could gamble. Also, and this comes to us uh, from the NPR statements, also the pedestrians themselves were not necessarily wealthy people. So it was pretty easy to rig the odds, too. Yeah. You could, it, yeah. You could pay someone to drop out first. Take a dive, yeah. as it were,
0: yeah. No, and it also that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand back to the roots of the sport uh, with the aristocrats being the ones, you know, watching for their amusement and potentially, you know, prospering, and then the, uh, the lower classes being the one that actually had to do the work.
1: hmm And, yeah, that's, okay, that's a great segue to talking about the people who are actually doing the work. Because like any other sport, this sport had its LeBrons, you know, it had its uh, Larry Bird's, its, uh, what are some, Andre Agassi? Pele? I'm just naming. Pele was a soccer guy. Yeah, I'm just naming different sports. Andre
0: Agassi is tennis. tennis yeah. yeah. Yeah, my favorite tennis star name, it was from when I was a kid growing up in Germany, was Boris Becker.
1: That's not bad. That's Boris, I've never heard of him. Yeah, he
0: was big in like when I was a, Child, okay,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was he was uh, an adult tennis player, right? He was an adult a, tennis player. So, sort of yes. like, your shady past as a child tennis player, I was a
0: child tennis prodigy, actually.
1: Oh, you're a prodigy, I gave it up, though. Not just, I a, gave it up for, for,
0: for outfield, oh, yeah, for being an outfield turd,
1: yeah, yeah which is yeah, a uh, uh, conversion of almost religious proportions, really. So, competitive walking's no different, they have these icons at the time. Uh, Noel, could you tell us a little bit about? The the guy was like the the um, the protagonist, the main character of. Competitive walking. Oh,
0: you mean Edward Payson Weston? The very same. It's the household name. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Edward Payson Weston was he was absurdly famous because again we have to remember the nation had walking fever and you know uh, it was hot um, as ridiculous as it sounds and he was, uh, the, he was he was he was he was bringing the heat um, uh, in the 19th century. He was originally a uh, bookseller, a door-to-door salesman, of books. He lived in Providence, Rhode Island. And then um, in uh, 1860, he and a friend made a a gentlemanly wager on the outcome of the election. And he actually bet against Abraham Lincoln and lost uh, in spectacular form. And his punishment was that he had to walk from Boston Massachusetts to Washington D.C. in ten days. Wow, that is a crazy bet. Mm-hmm. He really
1: thought Lincoln was going to lose. Obviously, Guess so. yeah, well, yeah.
0: Um, and he had to go see the inauguration in person, um, and it became kind of almost like a—I don't know how the media caught wind of it, or if he, he made a big deal about it. But whatever the the circumstances were, it became kind of a media blitz.
1: It went, as we would say today, viral because this was walking in the Northeast in the middle of winter. The roads were not that great. And all along the way, people who had heard about the story would come watch him, you know? Many of them no doubt expect him to fail or falter, but he made it in time. And then after the Civil War, he was still famous, and he said, you know what? (laughs) It's worked so well, I'm just gonna keep doing it.
0: Right, but instead of being the dead of winter, Uh, walking in horrible conditions, you know, um, alone. He did it in front of crowds, indoors. uh, You know, where they would go to like roller skating rinks or different places like that, community centers, and walk like 100 miles or something like that, like in a day. Mm -hmm. And people would, again, I can't get over how bored people must have been to find this, you know, hey, that guy really, look at his gait. Look look at his form. Like that guy really gotta gotta walk to him. Um, Yeah, they would watch him again, in circles, walk around in circles like all day and they'd pay, you know, uh, a dime or something to Mm. to see this uh, happen. I guess it was also like, you know, it it was a, it brought people out. So people, you know, that was part of the entertainment too. I don't imagine everyone was just eyes on him, you know, for a day.
1: Yeah. It was more like, let's do something different. Let's get some culture. Also, he became a national symbol in some ways of classism he he was like a, a figure skater in that he would dress in very garish, flashy outfits. And he was, I guess for another sports analogy, he was like the Yankees or the Patriots uh, because people knew that he would often win these things. And as, as you said, sometimes he would just pay uh, – he would just hold exhibitions and people would see him not necessarily competing against someone – they would just pay to watch him walk in a circle. I mean, that's good work if you can get it. And we, for Pete Saker podcasters. So he also made his name when he walked. Uh, at one point, he walked 1,200 miles from Maine to Chicago, Portland, Maine, in under a month. And he won $10,000 in $1867 in the process. So people thought he resembled old money, old America. And we know how these kind of competitive sports work. So, of course, he had a rival. A
0: nemesis
1: who Uh, represented
0: the working class. Right. You know, the blue collar and immigrants. Uh, He was an Irish immigrant from County Cork, Ireland, who had uh, come to the States about 10 years prior to the, uh, the walking craze being a thing. And he had no money, no job, and just was a scrappy kind of personality and found his way into this kind of... Uh, upstart um, pastime.
1: Right, and he was no slouch of his own. He had uh, had walked 116 miles in under 24 hours. He was very much seen as the upstart, the working man's hero. Uh, The public was going gaga for the hype about these two having a, a match. He also represented hope for Chicago's Irish community because... His last name was O'Leary. And, you know, in the 1800s, of course, uh, Catherine O'Leary, no relation, had been blamed for being responsible of the Great Fire of 1871. You know, she's the one, Mrs. O'Leary's cow, who uh, allegedly knocked over a lantern. So she was a scapegoat. And this kind of discrimination against her bled out into the rest of the city's Irish immigrant population so Dan O'Leary was seen as like the Irish hope and was proving that Irish people in Chicago weren't all bad. This is why Algio calls them Weston and O'Leary, the Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier of their generation. Weston's flashy. He's moneyed. He wears capes when he walks, which I think has some chutzpah. Uh, He is more, I would say, the businessman of the two, because he understands if you entertain people, uh, you can make as much money off the entertainment as you can off the athleticism. Whereas... Dan O'Leary is much more on the athletic side. He's no frills. Right, right. You get what you get. He's He's in it to walk. Yeah, it's about the walking. Yeah, I know. Yeah.
0: Did you mention that uh, uh, dude also carried a cane? And Weston, yeah, likely. (laughs) I just imagine him wearing a monocle. Oh yeah. uh, You know, and and a top hat, and a cane, and a cape, and really, really thought pretty highly of himself. It would seem. Yep. He was the cock of the walk, as they Mm -hmm. say, huh?
1: There we no. go. No, okay. Or the 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 cane of the lane. There you go. Yeah, he yeah? yeah he definitely tried to stay in his lane. Uh, the you know, cape of the s- scrape, This cape of the pave. Yeah, no, they're, they're not all going to work. No. So this this becomes in many ways a, an analog for cultural tensions that are brewing. Don't feel too bad for O'Leary because. He, Over the course of his career as a pedestrian, he made the equivalent of a million dollars or so just walking. Again, cannot emphasize this enough, in circles. Now, at this point, you may be saying, Casey, Noel, Ben, this sounds like a heck of a time, but uh, why, why can't I pay to watch people walk in circles nowadays? Why is the only thing left to me you know, stumbling around at Chelsea Market and watching people who patently do not know how to walk? Well, we have an answer for you. America's craze, the walking craze, faced some stiff competition in the 1880s, primarily because of something that emerged called the safety bicycle. Unlike earlier models of the bicycle, like the penny farthing and so on, the safety bicycle which had... Were patently unsafe. Which were patently unsafe. The, the safety bicycle had two similar size wheels. And Crazy. Who'd have thunk it? Right. I feel like that's the one you should have thought of Who first. came up with the big
0: wheel in front and the tiny wheel in back? It makes absolutely no sense. You're riding up so high. Yeah. I, I guess innovation happens in, you know, spurts or whatever. But, sure. like, it just seemed like it would have been a no-brainer to have two wheels the same size. Mhm. Knowing mm-hmm. how a car works,
1: you know? Like, it's like half a car. Right. And the, the, the penny farthings, uh, I, I, I'm trying to think of a more articulate way to say this. They sucked. Yeah. They were, they were just terrible. Uh, they had vacuum. But the safety bicycle was nimble. It was faster. They were more interesting to watch when they were in a race. It was cooler to see people on a bicycle racing or on bicycles racing than it was to see people just sort of walking around, even if they did have capes. Also, this is the thing, if somebody messes up in a bicycle race, it's a way better crash.
0: Right, back to the NASCAR thing, yeah. faster, more potential for havoc, you know, more potential for schadenfreude, mm-hmm. all the stuff that, that makes a good spectator sport.
2: Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car?
0: Did we mention that a lot of these big walking matches took place at the original Madison Square Garden? That's we did how, the first one. Yeah. yeah, that's how big this mm-hmm. this craze was. But all good things are incredibly weird, and dull things must come to an end. And you know, the bicycle racing combined with a few other factors really put a nail in the coffin of uh, of America's pastime, the, the the walking craze. And and one of them was what we talked about at the top of the show:
1: uh, baseball. Yeah. The National League had been founded in 1876. It became a profitable business when the team owners reorganized people who once had watched walking matches now wanted to watch baseball. And this meant by around the middle of the 1890s, pedestrianism was on its way down. It was being beset with uh, charges of race-fixing of corruption that had been there since the beginning, and doping, Ooh, right? Performance-enhancing drugs. No way. Not from a place where uh, where participants guzzled champagne.
0: Right, exactly. And I'm guessing, you know, you just needed something that would give you a little more pep, a little more zip in your step, uh, and that would have been, like, chewing uh, cocoa leaves.
1: Yeah, that's how Weston went down. That's his Armstrong moment. Exactly.
0: Um, they certainly wouldn't have had anything like the modern doping uh, techniques that we see today with steroids and the like or, you know, human growth hormones or whatever. They just had the good old chewing a cocoa leaf. And if I'm not mistaken, chewing a cocoa leaf would be a uh, stimulant buzz equivalent to doing cocaine.
1: I could. I mean, I could see like I could see that because people did consider it unsportsmanlike when Weston was caught chewing cocoa leaves. I think at the time it wasn't illegal. I guess it's illegal to chew those today. I guess it's like doing cocaine. It
0: would be tantamount to possession of a controlled substance. Okay,
1: I see. Uh, And Weston, when he was caught, said his doctor told him to do it. But people said, you know, this is is a bad sign. Have you guys heard of baseball? Let's go watch that. These six-day races are a little more like freak shows than they are like feats of athletic prowess. So this all culminated uh, in the the extinction, the downfall of competitive walking and pedestrianism in the 1890s. But make no mistake, folks, pedestrianism created a legacy that remains today. One of the uh, biggest legacies it's left us with is the idea of corporate sponsorship
0: i was thought i was hoping we were gonna get we didn't even talk about that right yeah yeah
1: so uh so dan o'leary the working man's hero uh was a spokesman for a brand of salt a guy named john hughes was sponsored by the national police gazette uh that was a newspaper at the time and he raced with a shirt that had the paper's logo on it because you know his body is the race car in this sort of this sort of deal
0: my little league baseball team was sponsored by a local plumbing company Cool. Do you remember their name? Nope.
1: <laughs> just remember they were, it was plumbing. Uh, let's see. In my, I we had some, we had some different, we had some different corporate sponsors. I think a lot of little league places are like that. I, I was in a team that was sponsored by the Church of Starry Wisdom. I thought you were going to say the Church of Satan. That would have been cool. Oh, the Church of Starry Wisdom is uh, is a whole different, well, it's not that different. It's a good reference. Is this a cult? I've never heard of this. It sounds cool. <laughs> uh, Google it and check it out later. But don't don't reveal it out there. We want to want to keep that that reference for uh, for folks who already caught it. So these guys also were immortalized on some of the first precursors to baseball cards, cigarette trading cards. Back in the 1800s, you buy a pack of cigarettes and you might get a trading card with one of your favorite athletes. And one of your favorite athletes might have been someone like Dan O'Leary. So one thing we do have to say too: these pedestrians, you know, it's easy for us to crack on them a little bit and say, ah, walking. How hard is that? But if you're familiar with uh, the Richard Bachman story, The Running Man, and the fantastic film adaptation thereof starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, then you know that walking for a long period can be, uh, can be some real exercise. And those pedestrians put modern running backs to shame during a football game that might last, you know, three-plus hours. Players only really run about 1.25 miles, much less than the pedestrians of the 1800s. Also, Running Man, huh? Uh, do you guys remember that film? Yeah. I still don't understand why that one guy sang opera. Did he? Didn't he? I don't remember. I, mean, I feel like one of the one of the plants. They're, they're like they're people. like the, they're like gladiators almost, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 I just wanted to take a second to uh to plug the career of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I be- believe is the protagonist in the film adaptation of the Running Man, right?
0: Absolutely. Um Let's see. I'm trying to get a list of the different gladiators. in the, well, gosh, one of them is Jesse the Body Ventura. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Unless I'm mistaken, hang on. We've got Buzzsaw, who kills the runners with his chainsaw and even cuts hard metal. Okay, that's that's helpful. This is from a wiki, fandom wiki. We've got Dynamo. Um, he's the gladiator. He's played by. Erlen Van Lith, who uses electricity. I believe that that's
1: that the that's the opera guy. He
0: does look very operatic. He's got like a yeah. like a ride of the Valkyries kind of uh, outfit on.
1: And Jesse Ventura is Captain Freedom.
0: He is in it. Cool. Yeah. I wasn't making that up. We got Fireball, um, whose power. Surprise! Surprise! He shoots fireballs, and then we've got my favorite, who really just looks like an embarrassing hockey player. He's like goalie. He's got all this padding on, and his name is Sub Zero, Uh, and he's he's got a sharp stick and a hockey puck
1: that has explosives. I think it was Dynamo who had a little kind of go-kart thing.
0: That Got it. And, and right you are Captain Freedom, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a. Uh, he's re- he's described here as a pensioned gladiator. He is the best. I think the, this is a British site. I think it means he's like the— Retired. He's retired or he's a, he's a, a veteran. He's gladiator
1: a veteran. emeritus, perhaps, yes, if indeed. he's pensioned. Uh, so—
0: Oh, by the way, he kills. Yeah. He kills people with his bare hands. He doesn't need a weapon. No, no,
1: he considers that unsportsmanlike. That's not what Captain Freedom's about. So, let's let's go back to Weston and O'Leary because you may have noticed, folks, we didn't tell you what happened to them. So, Noel, what what happened to Weston O'Leary after pedestrianism was no longer the national craze? Well, you know, you can take the pensioned walksman out of the
0: walking race but you can't take the walking race out of the pensioned walksman. You got there. Yeah. 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 Uh, whew, that was made me sweat a little bit. So, um, you know, he kept on walking. He was 73 years old. He walked from New York to Minneapolis. Um, and he it's a little sad actually. Uh, on on route would sell 10 cent souvenir programs. But I don't think he had the didn't have the following that he once did think he was largely just kind of selling them sort of like a a Hare Krishna at an airport, you know?
1: Yeah. And O'Leary decided that he would hitch his walking wagon to the rising craze of baseball. He became a baseball pedestrian, self-described. He would stage walking exhibitions before games in ballparks around the U.S., And then he would sometimes challenge one of the players on a team to run around the bases twice while he walked around them once. And he often won, which was good PR for them. And then this is another sad part. After he did all that, he would walk through the stands literally with his hat in his hand, getting nickels and dimes to take care of him, so he could make, so he could have money to live off of, uh, during the off seasons and when he when he would spend time in California.
0: You know, I actually think this could be, at the very least, a, like a. a- an episode of television or something, you know. I would love to see this as
1: a short film, perhaps. Yeah, I would watch it. I, I would watch it as a full length kind of league of their own thing. Yeah, but it's know.
0: also like it's it's the end of an era, and and you had someone who kind of rose to the top of this very odd fad, this kind of flash in the pan thing that then gets replaced by something. Almost overnight that has a lot more staying power and to like be, you know, established as like the leader in your field and then your field just starts to disappear yeah. uh, and you have to scrap for nickels and dimes and, you know, challenge the people who literally replaced you to foot races. You know, it's, it's a sad kind of feeling, you know, you really, if you really uh, do, again, it reminds me of a Mr. Show sketch where they're uh, talking about megaphone, like the, 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 the masters of the megaphone masters tour. Megaphone tour. Um,
3: Has like counterfeit money machine, counterfeit, sports bra. Yeah, but the whole that.
0: idea is that these guys are megaphone crooners. Yes. And then something came along and replaced megaphone crooning. And
1: then people were all megaphoned out. <laughs> I don't want to lose the thread though with O'Leary because he is an interesting contrast. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't caught doping, right? I, well, it makes sense. Yeah, and he he gave health advice uh, based on walking, and uh, he would say. People would ask him for exercise suggestions, especially for people who were too physically weak or impaired to play baseball or more demanding sport. And he would say, do not take strolls. Vigorous breathing is what builds up a healthy life. So he wanted you to walk like a machine, walk like him. And he lived well into his 80s. And people who saw him said, even when he was old, he still walked that way, ramrod straight uh, and and no cocoa leaves. Uh, you would Casey uh, off air. You had said that uh, there's something about cocoa leaves that might be of interest. Today. Yeah,
3: so it's not equivalent to, to actually doing cocaine if you chew a cocoa leaf, but it is a mild stimulant. This is coming from a Associated Press article. Uh, it suppresses hunger, thirst, pain, and fatigue, and it's also used to mask uh, uh, altitude sickness. So in Bolivia, for instance, you know the people who live like up in the mountains. Are you know fond of chewing it just to kind of keep their energy up? This became kind of a, a political issue because Evo Morales, previous president of Bolivia, mm-hmm. uh, was very much in favor of legalizing coca leaves and, and allowing farmers to grow them and chew them and so on. And uh, the United States was not in favor of that. And you see how that all ended.
1: Casey on the case. Da-da. And speaking of endings, I believe we have reached one. uh, We should also say that there were many other people who broke through. We're focusing on O'Leary and Weston, but we'd be remiss if we did not shout out Frank Hart. An immigrant from Haiti who entered a six-day race in Boston and performed so well that he moved up to the quote-unquote major leagues of pedestrianism. And he was taking part in what was, uh, he was a breakout in what was largely considered a white-dominated sport. This sport also opened doors for other men and women of color. Uh, We saw people like Ada Anderson, who proved that pedestrianism could help women achieve new status levels as well. And Frank Hart, by the way, once he won a prestigious race in 1880, headlines published his name from coast to coast. And this was at a time when, because of the color of their skin, people weren't afforded full citizenship. So pedestrianism in a very real way uh, helped break down some of the disgusting barriers of race that existed in this country, which is weird because when – before we did this episode – Had any of us heard of pedestrianism, other than, like, people walking on sidewalks?
0: No, and I think we're going to get to this in a later episode, but when I think of pedestrian, I think of the time when the auto industry essentially wanted to malign pedestrians by inventing the abusive term
1: jaywalkers. That's correct. I I did an episode of Car Stuff about it a few years back, but no one listened to that because we're doing it on this show. We're totally
0: doing it. And pedestrian in itself, as a word, usually means something's very humdrum and run-of-the-mill and kind of basic.
1: Right, like vanilla ice cream is the pedestrian choice of ice cream. But you know what is absolutely not pedestrian? The eggnog that we are about to crack open made by our good pal, Alex Williams. Thank you so much, Alex, for composing this track and for making some eggnog for us based on the recipe of one George Washington. It's true. I can't wait to sip that nog. As always, big thanks to Casey, uh,
0: Super Producer Casey Pegram, our research associate Gabe, uh, Christopher
1: Haciotis here in spirit. Thanks to, of course, Eve's Jeffcoat, our colleague who has her own history podcast, popular in the state in history class, and of course, thank you pedestrians the world over. We've all been uh, we've all been pedestrians at some point or another, and of course, thanks to you, Noel. Right back at you, Ben. See you next time, folks.
0: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways.
0: Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now?
1: No, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are.
0: While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my
1: friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, of rolling vineyards and castled hills, into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries. Fewer people and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com.